Morrison's Father's Day jaunt, Women's Summit Just Platitudes, a COVID update, and the good news is on carbon neutral football and electric scooters. Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison and joining me from the never-ending lockdown of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia is the always fabulous Van Batten. How are you, Van? <laughs> well, we've we've made a decision, listeners. Uh, somebody sent us a message saying, I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. But uh, you two are bumming me out because you're so sad about being separated. So we just wanted to assure our listeners, uh, based on the first story we're going to talk about, actually, that we are now beyond tragedy into comedy. Wouldn't you say, Ben? I think so. I think I think much of the nation uh, is joining us in the kind of it's so tragic, it's comic uh, you know, news news on COVID. We'll get to news on COVID, but first, Van, you know, you're in Sydney. Of course, most of our listeners will be aware that Scott Morrison flew to Sydney on Friday on a VIP plane at the cost of around 6000 uh, taxpayer dollars, stayed in Sydney all weekend, including Father's Day, and then flew back to Canberra on Monday, for a meeting that he says is part of his job. It's his job to, to go back, and that's why he sought and got an exemption. I mean, this is this is sort of like just tragic comedy, isn't it now? Like, here is a guy who who just goes missing, who just uses the office of Prime Minister as his personal plaything, and and he has defended himself over this fan like oh yeah well everybody's a critic when you're the prime minister you just get used to people criticizing you and it's like well you shouldn't you shouldn't get used to people (laughs) criticizing you you should take that on board and you should process the impact of your own behavior we are in a, a disease emergency we have been locked down for months i haven't seen you since june you and i are both double vaxxed our mother's are double vaxxed. Yeah. But if I leave New South Wales to see you in Victoria, I risk not being let back into New South Wales to be with my mother. And if you leave Victoria to see me in New South Wales, you risk not being let back into Victoria to work. What kind of situation is this? We're not asking for exemptions. We're not asking for special treatment, even if we are low risk of catching the disease, of spreading the disease, all those things. We are dealing with it because it's the basic social contract that we have to the community in which we live, a social contract the Prime Minister is not interested in heaving up. I mean, this is what I just said. Why does he want to be Prime Minister of this country? He doesn't like us. He doesn't want to live with us. He doesn't want to share our experiences. He doesn't want to show any solidarity. He doesn't want to share our feelings. He doesn't want to stand shoulder to shoulder with us. And it's like, so why pick Australia if you don't actually like Australians and want to be part of what they're going through? Yeah, it seems pretty um, outrageous. Like it's not as though in Canberra there isn't a fully furnished, luxurious, recently renovated palace that he and his family could live in or anything. You know, it's not like they make him sleep at a bus stop. You know, (laughs) most prime ministers up until actually John Howard, prime ministers all relocated to Canberra and lived at the lodge. Howard, because he liked Kirribilli more. And frankly, you know, like who can blame him? It's a waterfront palace, like fair enough. But even so, the lodge is the official residence of the Prime Minister of Australia. Morrison has played this, oh, but I live in Sydney and I work in Canberra card to try and justify this. Bill Shorten came out pretty hard on the Today Show. Well, actually, it wasn't even Bill Shorten who came out hard. Bill Shorten said it showed poor judgment. It was the hosts on the show who came out hard. They 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 expressed the level of fury that one would normally associate with us on the week on Wednesday. And and it you know was described as Hawaii 2.0. People were remembering the the family pub crawl in Cornwall. You know, like he just the Going lack to footy, of judgment. drinking beer, building a chicken coop, like having fun. Like his job's to have fun. Does he think he's the elected emperor or something? 
the well, big prime minister know, this- is surprised. Well, you can just abrogate responsibility and do whatever you like because you've won. Like this, this is sort of the the um, conversation, isn't it? Like, you know, he's a prime minister. He's not. Uh, he's not a medieval king. It's the difference between democracy and aristocracy, right? Is that he doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to just put his personal whims and desires ahead of the leadership position that he has been elected to for a three-year period, right? Prime ministers are not – they're not even elected on 10-year terms or five-year terms or four-year terms like presidents in the United States. Like it's a three-year elected position that can be revoked by his own party. Like this – for him to behave as though he's somehow anointed by God to do as he pleases. As yeah, but Prime he believes Minister. he's anointed by God. He thinks his election was a miracle. Yeah, and if well, you spend if you spend a year undercover in the Hillsong Church, as you know, I did in that particular kind of prosperity uh, doctrine theology uh, Pentecostal movement, where your your participation in a certain faith community, the one that he's a member of, because of his his fellowship in the Horizon Church, he genuinely believes that God has blessed him. He believes that. He said that. And they do and- call it and they do call it the Morrison miracle, right? Because he won the unwinnable election. But he's With obviously that taken that way <laughs> too way too much to heart. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like you had a billionaire who had an election war chest of more than sixty million dollars to spend on an air war that Labor didn't have the resources to compete against. And I think it says a lot about the last election that Clive Palmer actually had to spend $60 million to beat Labor and in the most nefarious, disinformation-saturated ways. Like I'm quite sure everybody who sees this show knows us and knows this show because they're active on the internet. I'm sure you've seen the disinformation that was pushed by Clive Palmer, the rumours and, you know, the material, the unattributed material that came out of nowhere that was mysteriously echoed in the official advertising from Clive Palmer. I'm sure I've got my two text messages from Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly. Haven't you, Ben? Did you get them? Yeah, we're all getting them now. Yeah, yeah, because they've got the money to slosh around. That's the level of resourcing it took to get a couple of 10,000 Australians to preference Liberals instead of the Labor Party for Scott Morrison to win government. That's not an act of God. That's an act of billionaire. Yeah, and, you know, Morrison simply continues to display this pattern of behaviour. One of the things that came out about this this Father's Day scandal was that the photo that got posted on his official channels it really heavily implied that Morrison, you can probably hear Germanica scratching in the background now, but heavily implied that Morrison was not with his family. It was an old photo. It was a cropped photo of him holding a dove with his family sort of saying, you know, it's days like this that you remember what how important it is to be with family, even if you can't be sort of a thing. And the photo itself as it turns out, it was actually from a memorial for children killed by a drunk driver. That wasn't referenced anywhere in the photo. The, the, the families who, was, who suffered the impacts of that uh, event were not referenced in any way. They were sort of erased from this narrative of Morrison, family man, holding a dove, um, you know, going through the same sorts of trials as the rest of us. And, and I think that's compounded people's anger, right? Because you've got, here's a guy who's spent $6,000 of our money on a VIP plane to go home for the weekend, in inverted commas, and then it kind of implied that he's going through everything we're going through. He's deliberately not going through everything we're going through. He's got no interest in going through what we're going through. He never does. When this country was on fire and we were all terrified, you and I packed a bug out bag. Like we had to do emergency management for our house and at least we got to do emergency management. I mean, Australians lost their homes. Australians lost their farms. I have a really good friend whose who's parents lost their vineyard, like their livelihood, their business, generations of investment and knowledge and, and like absolutely catastrophic for that family. And where was he? Hawaii, because he's not interested in being around us when we're suffering. 
You know, he's not interested in being part of the Australian story if that story is a bit uncomfortable or unpleasant. And you just, you compare that to Australian Prime Ministers like John Curtin, my hero, who literally died in office rather than abandon the Australian people at their moment of need, yeah. like literally kept working to, to lead this country through the Second World War and, by the way, built the Australian welfare state at the same time and gave his life literally for his country in office and Scott Morrison cannot, he's not prepared to give up a weekend. Oh, my God. Oh my God! It's pretty oh, telling. Forgive us, forgive us for what we've well, become. It's, it's pretty telling, and you know, I noticed uh, at the start of the Morrison prime ministership, and certainly after the election, that you didn't hear a lot from Scott Morrison on Sundays. And look, I get it; it's it's a religious day for him, uh, and it's a and it's supposed to be a day of rest. But there's a lot of Australians who work on Sundays, and a lot of Australians who do additional work on weekends because their job requires it, uh, many of whom you know, work in the public service for Scott Morrison, I have to say, yet Morrison seems intent on taking every Sunday off to the point where he has used a VIP plane, crossed two closed borders, sought an exemption from two governments, a state and territory government, uh, and I'm going to say it, attempted to mislead the general public about where he may or may not be using With a social photo media. of his children at a funeral. Like, it's pretty. A bird. It's I really feel sorry grim. for the bird. Yeah. And if you look at that bird, I posted on my, on my Twitter. <laughs> you know, you look at the bird and he looks like he's going to crush the bird. And then I juxtapose that against the picture of him choking a dog and I say <laughs> choking a dog because the dog looks like it's being choked it, it's not sitting quietly and he's holding it by the neck the dog it looks like it's struggling to get out of his grasp and in both of them he looks maniacal like I, I, mean, I don't want to pick on the guy's appearance but he he looks maniacal holding these two animals Ben he has a statue on in his office that says I stopped these that depicts a refugee boat as if that's something to be proud of. It's we are all watching dark. the images coming out of Kabul. We know what's going on in Afghanistan in the way that I don't think Australians did 20 years ago yeah, correct, when, correct. when we started seeing, like, Afghanistan is the world's largest exporter of refugees because Afghanistan is a is chaotic, dangerous murderous extremist disaster it is an absolutely terrifying place to live and now we are seeing it we are seeing it on the news every night and scott morrison has a statue to himself about stopping those fleeing refugees from landing on these shores and finding sanctuary well when you mentioned before you know morrison morrison doesn't really want to deal with any of the difficult things he doesn't want to you know, help Australia through challenging issues, uh, and clearly he's abandoning Afghanistan. That that's we've covered that in pretty good, pretty grim detail in a, in a number of shows. But I think the pattern of behaviour here is is really telling. And and Van, one of the other things that you know we need to talk about is the is the women's summit. That that uh, that's just come to an end, because Morrison's pattern of behaviour in trying to duck shove responsibility, avoid dealing with issues, you know, this women's summit was really a response to him trying to get out of a sticky situation, dealing with the political problem rather than the underlying problem around um, sexism, gender inequality. Um, sexual assault, sexual harassment in the workplace, and a culture really in his party in particular, but politics more generally, um, that that is degrading towards women. So he called this summit, um, and it's and it's just just finished, and and it's been described as uh, as a platitude, as um, as leverage for his own image. Uh, like it's been pretty widely uh, widely canned as a, as not being a real attempt to deal with the issues. 
No, not remotely. So the government commissioned the Respect at Work uh, report. They made how many recommendations? 44? 55. 55, sorry. Yeah, 55. 55 recommendations. And how many are the Morrison government, the Morrison Liberal government, how many of them of those recommendations are they passing into law, Ben? Uh, I think you know? about six, Van. Yeah. About six, Ben. It's yeah, six. Yeah, not, not many, that's for sure. I don't no, have the exact so number in front of me. It is. It's um, It's like, but what's wrong with the 49? There's actually nothing wrong with the 49. These are expert-led, evidence-based recommendations that have to, that have to do with solving the actual structural problem of women's vulnerability in the workplace, which is you know an intersection of different factors around power and how power protects men and male perpetrators from uh, you know from taking any responsibility for the way they treat women in the in the workplace, as we've seen in oh where's that place again Parliament House, and the government won't pass them. It's entirely a lip service exercise. It's not about improving the lives of working women. It's not about improving structural gender equality. It's not about looking at Australia going, we're supposed to be an egalitarian society. Why are experiences like negatively loaded for one gender as opposed to the other? Why is that happening? That's not... You know, they don't care. They well, genuinely don't care. They have no interest in reforming the boys' club that is the Liberal Party. No, they would well, have to be held accountable to that. They would have to look at things like quotas and inclusion and accommodations and accessibility and what does it mean to have breastfeeding women in your caucus and what does it mean to have to address childcare and what does it mean to be a working male parliamentarian and look at the way that you participate in your job as a, a role model for how other men participate in their jobs and how is that different for how women to get to participate in theirs? Like, you know, these are complex and difficult questions and this isn't an all men are bad, this isn't an all women are angels. Nobody is saying that. We're saying that again and again and again and again and again and again the stats keep coming in that the experience of gender in the workplace is different and it shouldn't be. It should be the same. And if it's not the same, we've got to look at why it isn't the same. Well, and, mm. and, and and going forward, not making everything worse for everybody, but making things better for everyone. But then that's not who they are. They're rooted in a, a, a masculinist ideal from the past that was always, a, you know, a figment of cultural arrogance and all different kinds of intersecting privilege, including race privilege and sexuality privilege and ability privilege and all these other privileges, and they want to keep it just the way it is because the reality is, and let's be really honest about why the Liberals are so absolutely terrified of gender equality because it means the very mediocre men who get very far in the Liberal Party because there are no quotas because they can rely on a, you know, like recruits, like promotes, like bases. Those very mediocre men are not competitive. The moment you start bringing in things like affirmative action and you do actually look at the issue of merit, you know, the underperforming, the clumsy, the hopeless, the, you know, misguided and misdirected, they tend to fall out. It becomes much harder for the mediocre to survive. And they know this and they do not want that to change. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, uh, it's uh, Matthew Guy's elevation back to the leadership <laughs> of the Liberal Party in Victoria. Is oh, that, it's amazing, isn't it, the three-way contest between Tim Smith, Michael O'Brien and Matthew Guy? What a gift to the Labor movement. Well, a gift to every left-wing person in Victoria. It's that classic It's that classic thing. The guy leads them to a, a record loss um, and thankfully nobody's there on merit but they're all – you know the failed sons of upper middle class fathers who who believe they are, so they pick the the biggest loser, but the best connected to lead them to the next defeat. Um, but I want to just come back to that issue that you raised about working women. You know the 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 Australian Union movement campaigned strongly across all of the different unions to see the recommendations of the Respect at Work report implemented. Uh, they lobbied hard. They campaigned hard. Um, they worked tirelessly to try and get this done. Uh, and, you know, obviously Australian Union's sponsors of this show, you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. And join your union. union. It's a tax deduction. Um, but 
no union women were invited to this four-day summit, uh, it's pretty telling that Brittany Higgins, whose alleged rape was kind of the trigger to have this national discussion, right, around this, uh, wasn't even invited as a delegate, ended up having to be invited to attend through one of the um, other organisations uh, who was who was invited. Uh, Grace Tame, Australian of the Year, uh, said that Morrison's speech had leveraged private disclosures from survivors for his own image. You know, this is... This is a pretty damning uh, set of things. The Victorian and New South Wales ministers just slammed the Commonwealth, said there were no concrete commitments coming out of it. Um, And Morrison still, again, defended himself, defended his government, saying that we need to accept other people's good intentions on this issue. No, we don't. Because good intentions, like, do not protect you from sexual harassment in the workplace. Law does. And Regulations do. Enforcement <laughs> does. Yeah. Being a union member does. Having a, a union structure that you can report harassment to who can take action on behalf, on your behalf. That is what actually solves the problem. But like I said, they're not interested in solving the problem. And I want to talk about the language that Morrison used as well because I caught one of his, like, thoroughly deplorable speeches on the issue and there was this really sort of he took this tone about how we need to protect women as if women are these gentle flowers you know and that we need to sort of and there was this real it was what i picked up on and i wonder if other women did as well this real sort of white knight sense of these poor helpless vulnerable creatures who, you know, we as chivalrous men, you know, have this responsibility to protect with our masculine strength. It had that kind of tone to it. And, like, I'm more than happy for people to go, no, no, I didn't hear it, but I did. And it really, it just, it's that women need to be protected from sexual harassment, which means that, you know, structure, like power structures have got to stop protecting perpetrators. That's the, the, the engagement with protection is around these specific well, to, issues. Women to, are not, you know, it's this, this framing of women as these, mm. you know, vulnerable, delicate well, then, creatures of pure oh, femininity. I, I just want to just say this, like I find it enraging because as a woman who has been sexually harassed in the workplace, which happened to me when I was working in the education sector and literally around teenagers getting harassed by a man at work in the worst possible way, um, I I endured more, and women do, women endure, women are tougher than the Prime Minister realises. And generally by the time that women have had, like are absolutely at their end and making a complaint, the kind of stuff they've already been through is the kind of stuff that would make, you know, a man's toes curl. If people really understood what it's like to be, like, to be made vulnerable in that situation, when you are, like, a strong, tough person of a lot of resilience, that's how serious the problem is. Well, then, I, I don't wanna... need Scott Morrison to protect me because I'm dainty. I actually <laughs> need him to address the regulation of well, the Well, let's talk place. about that. Can, can we talk about that? Sorry, because I'm I think, very no, no, look, it's, I, I understand it's, it's, an important issue, and I don't. I don't mean to cut you off. I, That's all right. I can't see you. So. <laughs> I'm. I'm just conscious that um, we have a lot to cover, but there, there are some really. Um, there are some really important points that you've raised there around the structural protection of perpetrators, because one of the other things that happened during the summit, um, not at the summit, but at the same time, was the appointment of a new human rights commissioner, and. And this was a person who, again, Grace Tame, Australian of the Year, um, sexual uh, assault survivor herself, slammed as a grave mistake because the appointee, not only is a former Liberal upper house candidate from WA, um, but is opposed to affirmative consent laws. This is the Human Rights Commissioner. Now, affirmative consent laws, and and jump in when I get this wrong because I'm sure I will, but affirmative consent laws effectively say that you have to have Positive consent. Just believing that you have consent doesn't mean that you have consent. You actually need to affirm that there is consent um, between two individuals um, or more, I guess, if that's what you're into, but primarily two individuals. Um, and this Human Rights Commissioner is, a, is opposed to those. You know, Van, 
is Morrison actually entrenching – is this an example of Morrison entrenching structural protections for perpetrators rather than dismantling them? Yes. Yes, it is. Been unambiguously. And, of course, they found, the you know, one of a handful of women in Western Australia who would be prepared, who is so – like such an ideological zealot that they would stand before every other woman in this country and go, oh, yeah, well, I'm opposed to affirmative consent laws. And I'm like, what kind of life have you led, honey? Like why why would you be opposed to those? At which point is, is, is it acceptable for there to be a grey area about whether a woman is consenting to sexual activity or not? Like how, how is that remotely defensible as a position, let alone from a human rights commissioner, from a human being? Yeah. Like women have the right to like to, con- to consent to sex. <laughs> like otherwise it is assault. Otherwise it is rape. Otherwise it is an act of violence. If somebody is in, on or around your body and you're not agreeing to it, it is, it is common assault. Like that's exactly what's going on and to think that that's somehow acceptable if it comes to sexual activity is is sick yeah, actually. absolutely. It's it sick. Like- and the idea that they would support her in a position of a human rights commissioner says some really dark and disturbing things. You know, it, for me it's like qualification to be on a watch list. Well, you know, getting consent from a woman, I mean – is that really important? It's like, well, yeah, because let's let's put this in a heteronormative case. I am I just can't imagine why you would want to have sex with a woman who was not consenting unless you were what's the word I'm looking for? A rapist. Yeah, I mean it it's, it boggles the mind and I think that the the summit itself has not really delivered any outcomes as I say the Victorian uh, and Queensland ministers, you know, slammed the Commonwealth. There, there was nothing of there about housing, and of course, we know that that women, predominantly, it is women who um, uh, suffer uh, domestic violence. You know, they incur huge costs. Uh, they they usually are the ones who flee the home. Um, they they need somewhere to live. There's, there was nothing about housing in the summit. There was just it's just the whole thing smacks of Morrison's attempt to deal with the politics and not the substance. And yet again, yet again, it's people who are dealing with the structural inequalities in our system, in this case women, who bear the brunt of that. It's pretty it's pretty grim. But look, I I do wanna I do want to move on, Van. I'll give you the last word on this on this topic. Is there other things you want to impart to the listeners about this summit, about the Morrison government's approach to women uh, and issues confronting women in the workplace or in society in general? I just I think it's pretty obvious that women are not safe with the Liberal Party. They're just not safe. No, uh, and you don't need to take it from me. I mean, obviously, I've never hung out with the Liberal Party. <laughs> Obviously not, but let's look at people like Julia Banks, and let's look at um, and let's look at people like Brittany Higgins, and look at all of these women who have come out and talked about an endemic culture of sexism, in which they have been marginalised and literally made afraid of the men around them, and it's like extrapolate that. If you can't treat federal members of parliament and your colleagues, your your political equals or your staffers with basic respect, if they don't have the expectation of being able to go to work and not be assaulted or abandoned or excused or called a lying cow, what, what do you people really think is going to be the governing philosophy of those people? It's been interesting, Ben, because I've seen a lot of chatter online from people who describe themselves as conservative, who have conservative values, who are horrified, horrified by just what's on show here. And I just, it's an interesting question because Morrison's all about optics, you know, like the I'm just a daggy dad who goes to the footy and drinks a beer and eats a curry and, 
something to do with a chicken coop and I'm just, you know, here's me and my my family holding a bird. You know, it's all about the photographs with this one. And yet the optics of his engagement around this issue are really of a, of a man who's trying to, like you said, he's more interested in the politics than he is with the substance. And does he even realise how it comes across? Does he think the lip service is enough? Because I know that if, like, if I was a conservative person, I would feel really unsure about, you know, as uh, I would feel really genuinely unsure about that man's commitment to any kind of sense of order or safety or the kind of values that or principle or the kind of values that you associate with like a conservative frame of mind. Well, and talking, I just wonder hmm. how it's like what's going to happen in the lead up to the election. Hmm. Well, talking talking about safety, I, I do I do want us to to have a bit of an update discussion on on COVID and, and where where we're at as a nation on on safety. And, and at this point, I, I want to encourage people to check out the on the job podcast um, with uh, Francis Leach and Sally Rowe. Hi, Sally. Hi, Francis. <laughs> because uh, I know that Francis will be uh, talking with some. Um, health workers, particularly, I think some nurses from New South Wales, uh, in the episodes uh, to come. Uh, in 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 upcoming episodes, it's on the job podcast.com.au. It's the Australian Union's official workplace podcast. They cover off a lot of the sorts of issues we've been talking about. The the workplace implications of the issues that we talk about here at the week on Wednesday, and I think. You know, when we're talking about safety, it is important that we think about COVID uh, as well. We think about what safety is going to mean uh, for the workplace. Of course, health workers, that's a, a female-dominated industry in the health industry, and COVID is disproportionately a risk to people in the health industry. And then... You know, you're in New South Wales. You're you're living it day to day. Um, have been for months now. Um, what what are you what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Tell us tell us about how things feel where you are. I have no hope. Right. Like, quite honestly, I think this is why. If my tone's different, everybody. If I'm a bit more snarky, it's just because I've I've given up. Like I, I sit in this house apart from my one hour of exercise a day and I miss my partner and I've been in tears and I've done all of that while the Prime Minister has enjoyed a lovely Father's Day weekend. And I just I have no faith in Gladys Berejiklian at all. I think the virus is out of control. I don't I, – they keep talking about modelling. Infections are over a 1,000 a day. They say we're not – the infections are only going to go up. They talk about vaccination. The messaging around vaccination has been handled so badly. I have a friend who's a medical receptionist who tells me that people just don't want to get AstraZeneca because the messaging wasn't handled by the government properly. And even though that is a perfectly safe vaccine, you know, the the chances of having a blood clot are tiny. They're infinitesimal compared to the threat of dying from coronavirus and but you know the the government didn't deal with it. They dodged the issue. They didn't take responsibility. Everything is so optional and so loose. It's just like well, it's Van, really did, hard. I don't. You, I, did I you can see say today? This- no, sorry. Did you see today when you're talking about vaccines um, and and dodging responsibility? Of course, some big news today was that Pfizer reached out to um, the health minister Greg Hunt. Uh, and there is now an email trail that clearly shows uh, that he he punted that uh, that approach from Pfizer, punted it off to the public service, uh, and effectively delayed the delivery of Pfizer, uh, which you know has sort of taken on an almost kind of Gucci, Armani you know brand element to it, which is a nonsense, of course, but. That this then delayed 
what in the emails Pfizer was promising millions of doses before the end of 2020. And of course, Pfizer didn't arrive at all, uh, certainly not in millions of doses either, uh, didn't arrive at all until February 2021. These men, and I use that term deliberately, are not opt- not up to the jobs that they were willing to do anything to get. Greg Hunt is not a good health minister. He has mismanaged every challenge, every serious political challenge that has come his way since this began, he has mismanaged. Scott Morrison abrogates responsibility, takes himself on holiday, you know, dances around like an emperor, leaves it, delegates it all to the states to deal with. Gladys Berejiklian is not up to the job. She's not up to the job. Her cabinet is all over the place. You know, depending on who's fronting the media, you get a different line, a different message. Nobody really knows what they're doing. Um, her Pollyanna Act this week, I had to stop watching. Like, and I'm a news person. Like, this is this is what I do for a living: is pay attention to the news. And I actually had to stop watching one of the press conferences because the premier was going on with, "Oh, look, I just want to concentrate on how great it is that people are getting vaccinated." And it's like there are more than twelve hundred infections a day. Well, there are hospitals that are not admitting patients. Nobody knows what is going on. People are dying alone in their houses. Everybody knows that you catastrophically, fatally, lethally delayed the lockdown and that the everybody knew when the lockdown should have come and you wouldn't do it and you wouldn't put the protections in place because you wanted to convince everybody in New South Wales that, that the lockdowns they hadn't had when Victoria had them were because of skill rather than of luck yeah. and you tested your luck and you failed and now we are here. And it's just so frustrating. Like it is, it's really interesting to me where I'm living at the moment with the neighbours and sort of people who are around. Um, we're not hanging out. Everybody's social distancing. Yeah, yeah. There are situations where you cannot avoid people um, who are very, like these are people who I think would, if they describe themselves at all, would describe themselves as centrist voters. Some of them are probably typical liberal voters. And the level of frustration is just through the ceiling. It's through the ceiling because I mean, why would anyone trust Gladys Berejiklian? Like, why why would they? Well, this is the this this is the thing, isn't it? Because the Pollyanna Act on vaccination rates, you know, and let me be really clear here, and I'm not going to do a Guy Sebastian and try and wind this back afterwards. Go and get vaccinated if you can get vaccinated. Go and get vaccinated. There are so many good reasons to get vaccinated, and there is only one one acceptable reason not to be vaccinated and that is because a doctor has told you not to be if the doctor has not specifically told you personally that you cannot have a vaccine you should be clamoring to get one because our vaccination rate the nation's actual rate of vaccination is 30.5 percent so for all of the and there's heaps of numbers out there and so I think you just got to cut back down to how many people are protected from getting symptoms of COVID because they have had both shots of a vaccine. That number is 30.5%. That's the reality. We are 34th out of 38 countries in the OECD. 34th. So the I'm literally begging, like, don't put it off. Don't wait for Pfizer. AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. Is fine. If saving you go millions to, of lives right now around the world. Saving millions of lives throughout the world. Go if you've got concerns, don't get your information from the internet. Go and see a doctor. Do not listen to your friends. Do not listen to your mum. The only person who you listen to in this instance is your doctor. And your doctor will talk you through all of the concerns that you have. And you can be confident that, I mean, it, you have a higher chance of dying from falling out of bed than you do from dying from an AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think, you know, I want to go into some of these numbers because they, they reinforce those points, right? New South Wales today, 1,480 cases. Nine New South Welsh people died. One was in their 20s, one was in their 40s. There are 27,000 active cases of COVID-19 in New South Wales. There are 2,000 active cases of COVID-19 in Victoria. You know, to to meet the vaccination target of 80% of people over 16 being vaccinated by December, we have to keep driving the rates of vaccination up and, disturbingly, 
there has been a bit of a tail off in the states of New South Wales and Victoria. These are the two states where there was a big surge. Now, there was already a tail off in places like the Northern Territory, South Australia, WA, Tasmania. And look, I get it. If it's not front of mind, if it's waiting in line for hours, if it's hard to book, all these things are factors that put people off. And if and if it's not prevalent in the community, like in Tassie and WA, you probably ask yourself, why would you bother? Well, because without without everybody being vaccinated. I mean, WA is talking about not reopening until they're at 90%. And I've got to tell you, on current trend, you know, you're talking about Christmas 2022, not Christmas 2021. We're also seeing that there's a, a larger cluster of deaths now than at any point during the pandemic except for the outbreak that hit the Commonwealth regulated aged care facilities last year. But the percentage of cases requiring hospitalisation is at one of its lowest points. Now, there's a couple of things about that I want to say, Van. One is that mostly the people who are passing away with COVID are unvaccinated. They have had no vaccine at all. In rare cases, they've had one dose. New South Wales is pulling a bit of a swifty, I think, on the hospital hospitalization numbers but even still even still if you are vaccinated you are incredibly unlikely to need to go to hospital so even though new south wales is not reporting the people who are getting hospital at home care as being in hospital in their numbers the reality is the more people who are vaccinated the less people need to go to hospital with COVID. That's just, that's a reality in Australia and across the world. But we need to we need to not be Pollyanna about this because I think, you know, you get you can get to a point where people go, oh, well, you know, we're, we're at 50%, we're at 60%, or we're at 70%, you know, that's great. I don't need to do it. Well, no, we everybody, you know, someone said to me, and we were talking about this the other day, one of the, one of the things people, I think, get confused about with COVID vaccines is that it's not a vaccine like many other vaccines where it stops you from getting ill, it stops you from getting the, the disease, it stops you from transmitting the disease. It suppresses the symptoms. It suppresses the symptoms. And if you have a vaccination, you can still get COVID, you can still transmit COVID, so we need even more people than a normal kind of vaccination program to be vaccinated to get that huge amount of protection that we really need to get so that the people who can't be vaccinated, the people who are at the most vulnerable parts of our community, who often you may not even realise are vulnerable, can actually be protected as well because this is a symptom-suppressing vaccine. It's not a disease-preventing vaccine. And that there is a difference in how that operates. Look, I think it's it's really important that we acknowledge just massive concerns of the disability community who are like, we're not expendable. No, no one with a disability is expendable in any society. Correct. The mark of of a of a great civilization is their capacity to accommodate and enfranchise everyone. And accommodating and enfranchising everyone, which is the, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to get all old school and everybody, but the point of democracy is about looking at how, like, we don't let, we don't prioritise the interests of a disease over the interests of a, a community of immunosuppressed people. Like, we have to put those who are most vulnerable to the, to the virus at the forefront of our thinking about how we deal with the virus from this point because, I mean, this is when you hear Gladys Berejiklian and going, oh, well, we can't live like this forever and, you know, we just have to live with the virus. Living with the virus for some people means dying with the virus for others in an insensitive policy context. And I don't want to live in that society. I don't want to live in a society that, you know, lets the immunosuppressed die because the current paradigm decides that they're the weak ones and need to go. That's it's 
morally abhorrent to me and I yeah. think is morally abhorrent to the majority of Australians. My and- mother's life is valuable. I have moved home to support her, you know, as she fights cancer because her life is worth living and she still has a contribution to make to her community and to her society, to her family, to me, to everyone who knows her. And the idea that her life and her contribution could just be on some kind of, you know, modelling sheet in the column that goes expendable because she's 80 and she's fighting cancer and that's a bit awkward for the Premier who really wants Louis Vuitton to open again is disgusting. Like, can we just, yeah, just acknowledge is. that that's disgusting? No, it is. And, and the vast majority of them. Everybody without outlaw. Yeah. No, Van, morally condemned. Van, and the vast majority of Australians agree with agree with us on that because that's what the research continually shows is that we want we want our most vulnerable community members protected. And and again, you know, this fixation, this Pollyanna approach of oh, we're at sixty five percent first dose. It, it that's great. That's great, and it's great that I'm vaccinated, and it's great that you're vaccinated. Um, but it's also about there are many, many disability workers who are not vaccinated. There are many, many aged care workers still who are not vaccinated. Believe it or not, like there are lots of people who need a vaccine who don't have a vaccine. There is still supply issues in some parts of the country, in some communities. I think Victoria is possibly the only state where the indigenous population is more vaccinated than the than the non-indigenous population. In in some parts of the country, it's incredibly low. Um, you know, there are lots of communities where simply getting to a blanket seventy percent vaccination rate and going. All right, we're we're going back to the way things were in 2019. Means death. It actually means death, and nobody here wants that. You know, we need to look to the northern hemisphere to learn the lessons, not just copy the policy, but learn the lessons from the policy positions. I was on a phone call earlier today with some people in America who, in the south, in the anti-vax, anti-mask south, where they insisted children go back to school. It lasted two weeks, two weeks before they said, no, school is off. We're doing it virtually again because two children died. A grade four and a grade 10 child died from COVID. Two children in two weeks. Oh, but, uh, we talked about it on the program the last week or the week before about how there were schools where there were protests against mask mandates that had to close mask mandates that had to close anyway because the teachers died of COVID. Yeah, you know this is. I suggest anybody who's a bit iffy around vaccination still or hasn't got around to it, I want you to go to Twitter and in Twitter search, I want you to enter the words "unvaccinated" and "dead." Well, because you will read these stories from the United States of America. There was one today about a, a woman whose 19-year-old daughter had died of coronavirus in hospital and her last words were on the phone to her mother because obviously her mother couldn't come into the hospital, um, begging her mother to save her. And they were the last words she ever said was like howling for her mother as she died alone in a hospital bed. And the entire family was unvaccinated and this 19 year old girl had no pre-existing conditions she was in good health we don't know why coronavirus picks some people and not others and this mother was just bereft and was saying i felt peer pressure to not get vaccinated i felt that it was an expectation on me from the community that i live in to not vaccinate and to not encourage my family to get vaccinated and she was like and i will live with this for the rest of my life that i let peer pressure and these cultural messages override my reason and now my daughter is dead. Like, what do you say? Like, well, I, I, mean, like- I, I say this, Van, I say that, you know, we need to make sure the peer pressure works in the other direction and it's been great to see yesterday and this got a bit of news coverage which was fantastic that the Australian unions have launched uh, an advertising campaign to encourage people to get vaccinated I know the entertainment industry has done the same thing here in Australia. You know, these are important cultural institutions, you know, that 
that are prepared to say you need to get vaccinated, you need to protect yourself, you need to protect essential workers, you need to protect the healthcare system, you need to protect your family, you know, you need to protect each other and get vaccinated. It's a really great, uh, it's a really great ad. It's really moving. You know, it's the sort of thing that you would have liked to have seen from uh, the Morrison government. But anyway, we the ad's there. Encourage people to check it out. If you go to australianunions.org.au, you'll see that that ad there. Van, conscious of the time, um, let's have some good news, shall we? Some good news. Uh, electric to, scooters. Electric, electric scooters, scooters in Tell- Ballarat. Yeah, tell people about electric scooters in Ballarat. So this is great. City of Melbourne and City of Ballarat are trialling a public electric scooter scheme. So scooters are a lot more accessible than bicycles, uh, which is great. And it's looking at electric and sustainable public transport, like a diversified public transport plan. So it's a trial, but they're coming to Ballarat, which is so exciting. Um, They don't, the Mayor Daniel Maloney has said that he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily think that people will be using the scooters to get in from the Ballarat suburbs into the sort of centre of town, but as a low-cost, uh, sustainable, environmentally responsible form of public transport, it's something they're really keen on trying. And I just love that. Like, that's fantastic. That's exactly what we should be doing. We should be looking at a diversity of sustainable alternatives to fossil fuel powered transit. Yeah, and our, and our, our friend, and our friend, the, the member for Bunningong, Michaela Settle, you know, I saw she was part of that announcement. It's great to see a Victorian Labor, you know, trialing these things, giving them a go. Ballarat's a very hilly city. It's actually, you know, getting around. If if you if you're trying to get around on foot, it's pretty difficult, and you do see a lot of people driving cars from pretty short distances because of the hills. So hopefully the electric scooters will, will go some way to uh, Yeah, and the, the geography of Ballarat, with it's got sort of two shopping precincts that are a little bit of a hike from one another. It's kind of a weird because it was, what was it? It was a creek full of gold and sort of the city blew up around it. But And it is. It's, it's a bit difficult to navigate on foot. And the idea that there's a public transport solution um, that's being trialled to see if it works, and it may not work, but that's great. Like that's it's that kind of innovative, people-focused, like looking at difference and different kind of accommodations, that's what we should be supporting. But I'm going to let you talk about our other good news story because it is really in your wheelhouse. I can't think of a more Ben- <laughs> Piece of good news. The zero carbon football match. So uh, regular listeners to the show will probably know that I am mad keen for the English Premier League. Uh, and the the good news here is that the Tottenham Hotspurs home match against Chelsea on Sunday the 19th of September is aiming to be a net zero uh, emissions match. So hashtag game zero will educate football fans on the role the sport they love can play in addressing climate change. It'll show how they can take actions to reduce their own carbon footprint. But importantly, the game, uh, which is being done in partnership with the UK government, with the Chelsea Football Club and with Sky, who have the rights to broadcast the Premier League, uh, will itself aim to be carbon neutral. So... The, the club will um, has improved its public transport infrastructure. So there are four train stations, free match day shuttle bus. Um, so the, the club itself is aiming to have no more than 23% of supporters travelling by private car on match days, and it's hoping to bring that number even lower for this particular match. Uh, it's got 180 bikes that can be parked uh, at local schools near the near the ground, uh, and providing security uh, and equipment like helmets and puncture kits and removable seats, um, and providing places for those things to be taken into the stadium, so you don't have to uh, risk losing them if you if you're in the stadium. Also, they're looking at the food options in the stadium itself, so more plant based food options because we, we know that meat does have a higher emissions uh, than, than, than vegetable-based options. 
uh, and also a zero to landfill policy uh, is going to be in place as well. So they're, they're also going to make sure that the, the squad all travels by bus uh, and Chelsea are getting all of their staff to travel by public transport to the stadium as well. Uh, and the buses that the players use will be running on biofuel uh, made from food waste rather than from from um, oil-based diesel. And, of course, they'll be using drink bottles because, you know, play professional sport, you use a lot of drink bottles. Uh, they'll be uh, drinking from recyclable cartons rather than plastic bottles. And for the emissions that remain, because, you know, there's still probably going to be some, they'll be supporting a community reforestation project in East Africa and creating new woodlands in the UK. So, uh, and the club, the club itself and people from the Sky Broadcasting team will be participating in, in some of the tree plantings in the UK. Like, I just think it's great. It shows great leadership, you know, There'll always be people who go, oh, that's a bit of a gimmick. Um, but, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that you do and you do enough of. You can start to build a culture of doing. You can start to demonstrate that actually it, it's not it's not a great impost to do. And I think that's the thing, right? People go, oh, that's not, they're not having to do much. Well, that's the point. That's the point. You know, we can actually do these things relatively easily. Um, they're not actually... A major change. The football game is still going to go ahead. It's still going to be broadcast. There's still going to be fans. There's still going to be all the amenities that people need and want, you know. And the good news is there won't be all the emissions that are normally associated with having that happen. I think it's great. And there'll be reforestation. You know, my dearest wish is that I live long enough to see the planet reforested. You know, like I, I just. I think it's my favourite word in the English language, reforestation, you know, and rewilding and the idea that we can actually repair, you know, these scenes of, of beauty and paradise around us. Absolutely. And we can fund that by watching football. Absolutely. Like that's just <laughs> like that's, that's a right. reason to get out of bed morning. Spurs despite, versus Chelsea, that's going to yeah, be a good game. Despite all the terrible things that happen in the world and that we talk about, the idea that somebody went, you know, let's use football to reforest an area is just like, I'm like, we're going to be okay as a species. <laughs> there are people who are willing to work it out. For every Scott Morrison, there is the head of like projects and outreach at Tottenham Hotspur. He's <laughs> like, actually, I'm taking some goddamn responsibility. I'm going to do the right thing and it's going to be awesome. Yep. You know, like social change, here's a spoiler, environmental sustainability, saving the planet can be fun. It Absolutely. can be fun. It can mean adding to an experience as opposed to taking away from it. So and on that yes. deliriously happy note, that is yeah, the way no, I almost day. said something nice about the Chelsea Football Club. That's how <laughs> impressed I am with yeah, this project. Let's not go too far. Let's not go too far. <laughs> You know, I want to I want to thank everybody who has been listening to the week on Wednesday, and to everyone who's been listening to the weekend wrap. Um, we have been doing, or I have been doing the weekend wrap pretty consistently now for the last eight or so months. I am going to take a break this Sunday uh, and have a Sunday off. Uh, unlike Scott Morrison, uh, this is the the rare occasion where I'll have a Sunday off as opposed to the norm, but. I do appreciate everyone who's been listening. It's been going from strength to strength, as has the week on Wednesday. We get so many messages. I should say that the, the Tottenham uh, Zero Carbon Football Match story came to us from a listener. So if you've got stories that you think we should be covering, do send them to us. We don't get to all of them, and for that I'm sorry because they're always pretty good, pretty interesting. Some of them are not fit to be aired, unfortunately. Uh, there are some things we can't say on a podcast, which I'm sure you'll all appreciate. But please do keep sending them to us. Do keep listening. Do keep sharing the podcast as well. The podcast and grows because you help it grow. Uh, don't forget to join your union. You can do that at australianunions.org.au slash Wow, that's wow. your cue, Van. You missed Sorry, your cue. that was my cue. I thought you were doing it. You had such a beautiful upward tra- trajectory, I didn't want to interfere. Um, Australians.org.au backslash wow for the week on Wednesday. 
So and join your union, be part of the movement for change. It's, it, as I always say, it's a tax deduction and it's awesome. Unions make you happier. It's science. You can look it up on the internet on a True. reputable site. Happier, paid more, safer. Like, yeah. I can't really you know, think of any reason not to do it. at work, all of those things. Yeah. So it's totally worth doing. And, you know, we just want to acknowledge people have been so kind to us. Like, Ben and I really struggle with being apart. We're a very, very tight couple. And people have been so nice to us and you know reaching out people who we don't know going are you guys all right is there anything yeah, we can do Ben, how's your mum and it was my mum's 80th birthday this week and all these people sent her a happy birthday and it was just it's incredible like and we feel very cared for and part of a you know really supportive community of people so thank you for that and you know we're just trying to laugh about it now I hope That's we recognise one another when we see one another again. Oh, we will, we will. Well, until next Wednesday when we will talk with you again, and Van, I will talk to you later tonight and tomorrow and every day until Every we day for the rest other. of your damn life, son. That's every right. Every day. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the love of my life. Bye. Bye.